Thank you for joining us for this Hagley History Hangout. I am Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library. And I am being joined today by Zachary Mann, a PhD candidate in English Literature at the University of Southern California, where we will be uh, talking about his dissertation project titled The Punch Card Imagination, Authorship and Early Computing History, uh, uh, for which uh, Zach has received support from in the, in the form of an exploratory research grant from the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society. And his project, um, Man reconsiders the development of punch card computing technology in light of contemporary literature, from parallels between the Jacquard loom and romanticism to the uses of punch card computing by uh, authors and artists in the mid 20th century. This interdisciplinary history suggests new approaches to knowledge and cultural production aided by computers today and in the past. Zachary, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, glad to be here. It's great. Let, let's start uh, sort of with the fundamentals of your project. What is a punch card and why is it significant to the history of computers? Yeah, well, the, the classic story of the history of the punch card as um, many materials in the Hagley uh, kind of confirm is that the kind of classic IBM punch card that we, that we know that was kind of at its height in the 1960s um, the very simple idea of it as being a piece of cardboard with holes in it to uh, program a machine um, was invented in 18th century France in the textile industry, um, in a certain form of it at least, um, for automating looms to create certain, to repeat certain kinds of weaving patterns over and over. Um, and that's essentially it. You just feed these cards with holes in it through a, a jacquard harness. Um, as it eventually became known, and it would tell the loom where to lift the warp or not lift the warp and create its patterns. And nowadays, computer history tend to look back on that as kind of a predecessor of the computer punch card um, through kind of a process, kind of a kind of indirect process in the 19th century. So the card was a means of uh, storing information such that a machine could read it. Precisely, yeah. It's it alongside the kind of the kind of cylinder they use for like player pianos, oh, sure. um, teletape and things like that. Or is all these are all kind of predecessors of that kind of first machine programming is what I'm looking at. Well, what, what is the connection there with contemporary literature? So my, my project, and, and I am a literature program, so I'm focusing on literature. My project is while these, while these punch cards, while these looms and other such early um, innovations are normally studied as like stepping stones to the computer or like part of this teleology of how what what became computer programming. I'm interested in kind of like what these actually meant in their day, which is often not talked about um, apart from like maybe some economic um, effects, um, but I'm looking at the kind of the effects on culture production. And what I'm looking at is like when as simultaneous to these looms being developed in the 18th century, you had in literature and culture production, art production, visual arts, music. You have a lot of artists starting to start imagining what it'd be like to automate um, creativity. So it's like, it's kind of, it's pretty rough in the 18th century, but as it develops, you know, as the Jacquard looms invented in 1804, then you have kind of literary romanticism and how they start considering kind of the future of the, the future of the author, the future of the artist um, in the memory of the public and the memory of canon and how that's getting threatened by this idea that now art manufacture even 
visual arts and art are starting to be developed without the artist present. And then you have um, Charles Babbage's analytical engine and um, his translator Ada Lovelace start actually even more further imagining what this kind of punch card system, and other kinds of machine automation might do to the future of culture production, um, right? So Babbage is interested in calculators, but Ada Lovelace is actually interested in what it might mean for music and art. Um, so I'm looking at that as well. Um, yeah. Um, so were, was the initial reaction from uh, uh, writers, artists, and thinkers uh, to be threatened or, uh, or perhaps also to see the possibilities? My argument is definitely there's a little measure of both. Um, there's definitely some, definitely a lot of initial uh, negative reactions. You know, Jonathan Swift, um, kind of like a first um, subject matter there. But then as you go, artists start thinking to themselves, it's like, you know, we are the chief content operators of our own, our own careers and we are a firm in ourselves. And that's kind of, kind of what I'm looking at now in the 19th century. Well, how does that play out? Right, so that instead of the, the obsession with having the kind of representation of the, the author's labor, like, you know, I wrote this, you can tell because, you know, you have, I'm talking about myself with a pen in my hand, like I'm proving my, I'm proving that this is my private property, so I can like satisfy the legal ramifications of what private property, how it's, how it's invented by, you know, the kind of the Lockean idea of it. Um, and it, it shifts from that to thinking about it's okay. I don't need to like really actually be there writing it. I just need to have like my, my name, my brand, my, my uh, persona on the page strong enough that it doesn't really matter who I am personally, um, as long as kind of I have this other author in the world um, apart from myself. And I'm kind of looking at how that is similar to the idea that punch card and other types of storage of creativity are considering the idea that creativity can be stored outside of the author themselves reactivated on the page, reactivated else afterwards after they're dead. There's kinds of uh, new ideas, I'm arguing at least, um, about cultural production. It reminds me a little bit of, of the, the workshops that uh, master painters would have, where they would have numerous people working under them effectively yeah. uh, copying their work or doing work that, uh, as you say, had a strong enough resemblance to be branded as a Rembrandt, for example. Precisely, Rembrandt would often farm out his like actual execution of his work to like teams of, of journeymen as, as they would be called, yeah. Are there examples then in, in letters? In my, my project is, most, is mostly looking at it kind of more theoretical. Like, so I am not, I am looking more at kind of the practice of imposture in the 19th century and forgeries and when you think about authors, um, how we think about them today as like, a, as like a collection of works that are both fake and real, like both forgeries and not the reputation is kind of very publicly created, um, how that might be similar to the literal use of a farm of a team to paint your paintings. Um, and just the, the relationship between the publisher and the author. And it, it kind, of, kind of works out in a similar kind of division of labor, um, even though it's not as literal as, as some visual arts and music is. What collections at Hagley have you looked at? That, so Hagley has this great um, collection of 19th century American um, kind of history of the punch card. You kind of have, you have industrialists coming over here in the like 
30s and 40s, 20, 20s as well. The first, um, they have a collection from uh, William Horstman, which he was the first one to bring over the Jacquard Loom to the US, to Philadelphia. You have um, uh, someone named Jenks, who I'm kind of maybe not, cl not collecting right now, but who was a kind of innovator of the first power loom in America in 1830. Um, and I was looking kind of their, their materials and their sort of, they, they like computer historians today like to think of themselves as like the end result of a evolution of innovations. So they like to look back on Jacquard as a kind of figure in their history. Um, and that's even increased, um, repeated again when you have, um, Hagley also has um, Austrian's collections of um, William, uh, sorry, Hollerith's, uh, who's invent invented the punch card for the US census and then founded IBM. And how he also, or people writing about him, also imagined the Jacquard loom as kind of a predecessor to the IBM punch card. So I'm kind of very much looking at that kind of more, the more mythological history of the punch card through time. Um, Hagley was very great at like drawing those connections between especially Europe and America, um, which I was definitely interested in looking at. And one of the coolest things they had, um, the, two of the, some of the coolest things they had, they have a bunch of um, a trade magazine called the Punch Card Annual, which talks about the punch card and it's, and it's like early 20th century. And they kind of have like sections of history where they explain history, their own history, which is mostly false, but very interesting. <laughs> um, and then Horseman for the Centennial in 1876 um, produced a, what I'm, one of my projects really, really interested in is um, the really complex art woven on, woven in silk using the automated loom. That's my argument is like showing how fine art can be done in automation. And there's some great stuff in France, um, more, much more fine than stuff I'm looking at in Philadelphia, but Horseman did for the Centennial produce a, a, um, a silk woven image of Independence Hall, which the Hagley has. Um, it's only like maybe this big, but it is pretty fascinating to kind of look at and just kind of see the machine weaving in the 19th century. Was it able to uh, approach uh, the quality of a, a non-automated pro product? The, the Jacquard loom certainly was able to in the 19th century. This, this item is maybe less so. It kind of looks, it looks, uh, I don't know what's it, it looks like more like, a, what do you call it, a pillow? The kind of, <laughs> like a decorative pillow. It looks more like that, okay. but yeah. yeah. The, but the, so I don't know how many punch cards that one used, but some of the other ones done in France around the same time were using something around 80,000, 100,000 punch cards to make one single design. Um, wow. My guess is the one that the horsemen's uh, use is probably more around like 10,000 in terms of just like fineness of weaving. It's amazing that it introduces this ability to sort of quantify, uh, what would we say, create creativity or even um, creative density interesting creative density uh, <laughs> yeah there one of the kind of the famous quotes um you have kind of the arts and craft movement in the late 19th century and you have um they kind of take on john ruskin's writing and one of the quotes that i like a lot of his is that no machine will ever approach the subtlety of the human hand subtlety of the human hand will always always like you know kind of be king in the artistic um departments but my argument is that like if you look at some of these silk woven pieces, they're they are indistinguishable from engraving. Um, 
and it's kind of impressive. Yeah. Mm. There is even a, a prayer book made in France in the, I think 1888, a full book of just with wor words, the whole, all of it is just woven by machine. And it's quite, yeah, it's wow. quite impressive. Wow. Hmm. Um, well, how are you able to use uh, the materials you, you accessed at Hagley for your project? How are they able to advance your understanding? The, the, the biggest, as I mentioned, the biggest, the biggest thing was just giving me this kind of grand narrative to work with, um, to work against, um, to kind of look at the history as it's being made, because that, that was a big thing. Is I'm, I'm relying on these computer histories written in the last 20 years, and um, they are not always, a lot of the history of the 19th century, they are leaning on is really for them just a footnote or a, you know, a couple of pages. Um, but what I, this is interesting was like looking at the history of the postcard as it was being made in the 19th century, as it was being formed. And that's kind of what I want to write against as I'm talking, especially um, when I start talking about Babbage in the kind of the mid 19th century. Um, a chapter it's an start. important, it is an important methodological question, whether you uh, read history forward or read it backward. And um, uh, it sounds like you're, doing the important work of, uh, of uh, reading it forward. Yeah, the, uh, precisely. I, I don't want to fall into the, the kind of classic history technology trope. You don't want to fall into the trap of just kind of building on this long history of, of uh, what people have said the last you know, five years ago. And, <laughs> and it tends to be kind of presentist in its motivation, right? So I, I definitely want, and I, you know, I'm, this is what I'm told by the committee and everyone, often told it's kind of you know, more, more primary sources, more primary sources. Uh, so I'm looking, I'm, you know, it's the, what Hagley is really giving me is a kind of a wealth of primary sources to, to wrestle with as I kind of deal with this kind of um, histories of red and histories that I like assume, um, which it's been challenging to look at these kind of self um, fashioning of, of these 19th century historians and industrialists. Mm. Did the advent of computing technology change literature? This this is a section of my project that I have not quite reached, but I, um, but certainly you have, um, there's an argument to be made that kind of the moment in the 60s and 70s when literature kind of um, announces the death of the author um, coincides with the kind of the rise of the computer um, in some interesting ways. And I, my project specifically focuses on, um, as a kind of example, I focus on um, J.M. Coetzea, the South African um, novelist who worked at IBM in London before leaving to have a literary career. First, he went to UT Austin and studied Beckett, um, Samuel Beckett, and like tried to solve Samuel Beckett as if he decided Beckett was a computer, kind of created a bunch of matrices and computer programs to try and solve Beckett, and then went on to become a you know, kind of a cherished novelist. So I'm looking, kind of looking at his 60s and 70s career and what he was thinking about literature through the computer to talk about how um, all the questions being raised in the 19th century about how we define creativity, um, how we identify who the author is, um, is still being challenged by the kind of the question that Koasea is asking about who is the author of Beckett's prose work is it this interesting man Beckett or is it a mathematical equation is what it, kind of what he is looking for. Um, 
and that kind of like question of who is the author at the, at the center of literary history in general, um, constantly being challenged by these technological innovations that we mostly ignore as a discipline. Well, for those of us such as myself, unfamiliar with the concept, uh, what is the death of the author or, uh, in, in the mid 20th century? It, it is just the idea that when we're reading literature, we no longer really necessary, necessarily like are looking at um, the, 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 the book's past, the, the real life of the author before the book. We're looking at the author as it's being invented for us on the page. We're looking at, um, we're using the word Shakespeare as a way to identify a collection of works, not to talk about a person named William Shakespeare. Uh, so it's kind of shifting from um, this idea that we, we're studying humans, great humans, great men normally, right? Uh, who have the intent to write literature and who carry it out. We're now looking at just what texts are doing, what books are doing, how they behave in our culture, not so much how the, how the people are. And that's kind of the, the big shift that happens around the same time that computing really enters the personal sphere. Hmm. That's, that's fascinating. Um, so we're, um, I also see the parallel there. Uh, so it's a, a new emphasis on documentary analysis. Um, and that, of course, is an important technique in doing history. And so it, it, it makes sense that if uh, this is how you're going to study literature, that bringing in the primary source uh, foundation uh, to set them in conversation is quite important. Yeah, the real challenge for me is I'm making these claims and also I'm looking at kind of the personal lives of these people in the 18th and 19th century to see like where they encountered <laughs> such and such machine in their lives. So it's kind of mixing kind of both. And it's, it, it, takes a, it takes a little bit of imagination, hopefully not too much on my part. Well, are there uh, any implications from your work that you could draw uh, for our society that is saturated with computing technology and computing capacity? Um, yeah, a good, good question. I guess my, um, my hope um, is that what I'm doing is obviously not in itself a correction to, but a part of a, a new way of talking about computer history that is bringing more of the humanities in, into it um, and is hopefully leaning less on some of the more, um, we call it bracketing out of culture that much of um, technology history includes. So I mean, obviously history technology has, has um, incorporated the social history of technology, cultural history of technology quite a bit in the last 25 years. But I'm hoping to kind of add to that to bring more of the humanities in, in encountering with that history, to kind of open that up and kind of further challenge some of the more like enlightenment um, roots of the computer um, to show how it's not just grown kind of objectively throughout the last three centuries, but has been a lot of stops and starts and interesting um, encounters where who knows what has influenced the invention of the computer more than just a couple of scientists in their labs, right? Sure. Uh, uh, of course, there's an important element in the history of technology about uh, the, the consumer or the end, or the end user. Mm -hmm. And in this case, um, if the end user is an author, that does uh, that does sort of quite complicate the the production of culture done through the machine. Yeah, and I and I would argue, although I haven't quite made the argument yet, that that kind of loops back into the further innovations of the machine. Um, 
the kind of imagine the, all the imagined uses of the machine end up influencing its later innovation. The, the sort of classic example being in the popular imagination being Star Trek, where uh, Precisely. <laughs> right, uh, communicators sparked the idea of, um, of um, wireless communication in different ways. Yeah, precisely, or as simple as the typewriter being invented for first, you know, perhaps for some disability and then, and then after that for like stenographers and then, but once authors then started to imagine themselves as like the godlike figures on their own, like creating new worlds with their fingers, um, the type typer became more and more designed for actual people to use on their, on their own, you know, perfectly able people to use on their own. So um, interesting way that that's also shifted the typewriter history as well. To your knowledge, is, was there a similar process uh, for word processing? I imagine so, but that's definitely outside my, my purview. <laughs> uh, well, Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, I can't wait to read your project when it's all said and done. I look forward to finishing it, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much, and thank you so much for the Hagley for the, all that great materials and you know great location. Absolutely, uh, and, and for the audience, if you'd like more information about the Center for the History of Business Technology and Society, uh, the Hagley Museum and Library, or the Hagley History Hangout Program, go to our website. That's Hagley.org. H-A-G-L-E-Y.org. And Zach, thanks you one again. Thank you. <laughs>